Hi, this is Steve. In March of 1930, the Association of Motion Picture Producers agreed to a code of voluntary self-censorship known colloquially as the Hayes Code. In addition to its restrictions on language, nudity, and violence, it also dictated what kinds of stories could be told. According to the code, films should never be presented in a way as to throw sympathy with criminals. The sanctity of marriage shall be upheld, and pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationships are accepted or common. Topics like prostitution, drug and alcohol use, and the exploration of obscenity in any form were strictly prohibited. In other words, according to the Hays Code, movies are about good guys who always win, never want to sleep around say no to drugs, and exist within a moral universe defined by a clear demarcation between right and wrong. Needless to say, Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese's haunting story about a man balancing on the razor's edge of rage, loneliness, desperation, lust, and violence, simply could not have existed within the confines of the Hayes Code. It is a film whose moral ambiguity, Honesty, humor, violence, and madness tear at the fabric of every convention and force us to examine the stark and often disturbing realities beneath our veneer of civilization. It is at once a great and difficult film, fearless in its depiction of one man's journey into his own darkness and unflinching in its determination not to give easy answers to difficult questions. Starring Robert De Niro, Sybil Shepard, Albert Brooks, Jodie Foster, Harvey Keitel, and Peter Boyle, Taxi Driver remains a classic of 70s cinema, with a power and intensity that has rarely been seen on film. If you haven't seen this remarkable movie, we highly recommend buying or renting it through our website, cinephiles.net, that's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net, where you can check out Taxi Driver along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. Taxi Driver is a remarkable film. In fact, there's so much to discuss here that John and I had to break it into two parts to fit everything in. So, once again, that's part one of Martin Scorsese's groundbreaking Taxi Driver, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Hi everyone, this is Steve. Jumping in just for a moment to say that the film we're reviewing today, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, might be a classic of 70s cinema, but it is definitely not a movie for the whole family. In our discussion... We get into some topics which some people might find difficult or even offensive. Still, we think this film has as much or even more to say today than when it premiered over 40 years ago. So, without further ado, let's dig deep into Martin Scorsese's 1976 film, Taxi Driver. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, host, writer, producer... All that jazz here in California and Los Angeles. 
and we are recording on my contraption. That's right. This episode, so I'm I'm like super worried that it's not going to come out the way Steve likes it because Steve is so <laughs> precise about the editing. I don't mean in a negative way; I mean a positive way because you guys know who've listened to our episodes. Steve edits our episodes; it puts in the clips, makes sure the audio's on 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 point. So it's it's kind of unnerving to make sure this gets all right because I want the episode to sound great. Because um, and we're doing this in the rain in Los Angeles. That's right. It's a nutty, nutty a crazy day. Crazy rainy day. I almost died five times today driving to and from work. So, I, I anyway. <laughs> well, that is it's... a perfect, <laughs> a perfect mental state for you to be in for us to discuss the film we're talking about. Driving yes. through the rain and yes. angry <laughs> for us to talk about Taxi Driver, yeah. 1976. Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro from a Paul Schrader script. Um, this is. One of our most requested films on Patreon. Incredible, really. Is, I'm going to tell you. So Marcel Bergman, Royce Thompson, Claiborne Williams, and Rahul Parmar all, and I probably didn't pronounce all those oh, right. That's all right. But they all requested this film, and we are very, very grateful for their support. Yeah. And Claiborne Williams is going to tell us exactly why he wanted us to review Taxi Driver. Hey, John and Steve, this is Claiborne Williams. I'm from Portland, Oregon. I originally grew up in Northern Virginia, so shout out to Roka. The reason why I wanted you guys to talk about Taxi Driver is because it's the first film I ever saw that goes in depth into a person's psyche, their mind, their motivations. What they see is what we see throughout the entire movie. Whatever Travis Bickle feels or sees or thinks, we as the audience do as well through the entirety of Taxi Driver, which is so special and amazing to me. And I have a feeling that if we hadn't gotten so many Patreon requests, you probably wouldn't have wanted to do it. No. I sense more reluctance from you on this movie than anything we've done so far. Yeah, as soon as you said it, I was like, no, I don't. And, and it's it's because I, I always remember this film as a very difficult film to get through, a difficult film to, to watch. And uh, uh, and it, it asks a lot of you to go into yeah. the psyche of a person like this, and I think I said this on the Top Ten show one time, and I said, I don't, or maybe it's our show, and I said, I don't trust someone who watches this film multiple times because <laughs> it's an unsettling film. It's deeply unsettling. Do you remember when you first saw it? Yeah, I think it was one of those things where like, you have to see all the Scorsese films, right? So right. I, I, like I've spoken about many times, working at Charlottesville, Virginia, having access to the UVA library of movies, um, this was one of them. I went through a Scorsese period where I watched Mean Streets, uh, Taxi Driver, uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, right. like all these different uh, early 70s or late 70s, I guess, for lack of a better uh, time frame there. Uh, it's in of, the 70s. Yeah, it's in the 70s. There you go. The entire decade of all the <laughs> Scorsese stuff, and then worked my way up to King of Comedy, and then from there you get into the popular stuff of Scorsese, but right around that time. So I, I went back and watched, and I remember this was very difficult to watch in a crowded library, because back then people went too. to libraries, yeah. and you sat and you watched, and you're just like, man, ooh, oh, this is very difficult. I, I remember taking a couple of times, just taking a walk, to kind of shake my head out of it because I wasn't at that like age to under to be able to look at it and watch it objectively. I was at that age where it could affect me in a way that was negative. Well, I don't think it wants you to watch it objectively. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I think that I mean I struggle with this movie too because yeah. I think, like you know, I'm very intellectual. Sure, sure. And I want to understand exactly why everything is in where it is. Right. And in this movie, it's just like it just kind of has to wash over you, mm -hmm. and you experience it. It's not a movie you can sit back from. Yeah. 
Um, for me, I, I I watched it when I was saying exact probably the yeah. exact same. This is where you're in my background is identical which mm. is there's this certain point where we started methodically going through films yeah. and i did the same thing and it was you know sometime in college i started watching all those scorsese movies i remember watching it i think by myself on vhs i had rented it mm. and really it was really hard and went wow i don't know how to feel about that and i really i have two stories to tell of what of how i came to the movie this is the first one, alone, watching on VHS and getting just really, this is a really upsetting movie. And then I probably saw it once or twice after that. And then, maybe 10 years ago, they were showing it in the Cinerama Dome. Oh, yeah. So I went to see it in the theater. Wow. And the experience was completely different. It was like I was watching a different movie. Because mm-hmm. it was funny. <laughs> and everyone was laughing. <coughs> what? Yes. Throughout, like, where? Really la- I will tell. I will talk okay, about okay. some of this. Like, really laughing at the film, and I went, "Oh, I didn't. I had no idea the movie was funny. I mean, I knew Albert Brooks was funny, sure, but I didn't know the movie was funny. And then when I just watched it again last night, it was kind of halfway between. I saw. Mm. I, there were points where I was like, "This is bleak as fuck," and there were yeah, points no. where I was like, "No, this is just actually genuine." humor in a really weird way yeah it is a and and maybe this is one of those movies where it's a lot of what you bring to it you know and where you are and who you're with and yeah because it's a complicated film (laughs) (laughs) on so many levels and and for the record i enjoyed the hell out of watching it this time and i was dreading it right because i was texting i was like i don't know i gotta because you were like i'm diving into this world and it's a lot for me and i said yeah i'm dreading watching it i watched it this morning at 6 a.m in my bed. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I was like, I, I put it to the last possible, like a procrastinating <laughs> fool, to the last possible moment, I pushed it off watching it, and then eventually I, I opened the laptop and said, you got to tackle this thing, and I watched it, and I couldn't have enjoyed this film more, wow. and I was really Did you, surprised. This was breakfast time. Did you have like cereal covered with peach brandy <laughs> while you were at it? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> I don't what know. What is all, the, all of it? No, but I just, I, so I'm excited to talk about it. All right. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about pre-production. Um, so Martin Scorsese was teaching film school at UCLA when this kind of process started, and I didn't realize that Oliver Stone is one of his students. At, uh, uh, no, I, I said UCLA. Please forgive me. He's at NYU. NYU, right. Yeah, for, Sorry, sorry, uh, NYU. <laughs> I know I messed that one up, but yeah, Oliver Stone was one of his students, which I never realized. No surprise, and, really. And Paul Schrader, who's the screenwriter, who is a fascinating Hollywood character. Yeah, um, he had had a religious upbringing. He didn't see a movie until his late teens. Wow. Yeah, and then it sounds like he went a bit crazy. Yeah, sure. He. He's a he's an out there guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he went I think into movies full on, but also into all the life I think he was denied full on <laughs> because you know this was a very conservative upbringing, yeah. and this guy like seven years after he sees his first movie writes Taxi Driver, right? Like he's been through some stuff. He goes to UCLA. He gets a degree in film. He starts writing screenplays, and there's one day that he realizes that he has not talked to another human soul for three weeks. Wow. And that is when he started writing Taxi Driver, which he wrote, I think, two drafts in about two weeks. This is so interesting. Yeah. It just, and, and, and this theme of loneliness and lack of human connection mm-hmm. that he was experiencing, that is a key to the movie. I mean, yeah. that is, you know, and I think it's something I've experienced. I mean, like, I've experienced it, maybe not to this degree, certainly not to the Travis Bickle degree. Right. And I think this is part of what draws us into this movie is I think every human at some point in their life has felt 
this isolation, this mm-hmm. disconnect from humanity, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, I think when you move into a big city yeah, or when you're like ripped out of what your usual comfort zone and you have to confront the adult world and you maybe aren't prepared or ready to see the betrayals and the lies and the uh, proclivities and the unique personality uh, disorders of people or their uh, tastes in sexual tastes or... Uh, drugs or any of those kinds of things, you start to see the lesser aspects of our humanity and you see it throughout the whole movie through his eyes, how he views the world in in disgust. And we don't have any idea who this guy was before other than what he tells Joe Spinell when he signs up right right at the beginning, but we really don't know. Not very much. We can get a few clues. If he's telling the truth. If he's telling the truth. Right. Yeah. And, And the, well, it's funny, like, as you say, you can be alone in a crowded city in a way that you cannot be alone in a small town. Yes. Those are really different things. Mm -hmm. And so that this screenplay comes out of loneliness and he gives it to his friend, Brian De Palma (laughs) and Brian De Palma gives it to three people. He gives it to uh, Michael and Julia Phillips who are producers. Yes. And he gives it to Martin Scorsese and says, you might be interested in this. Wow. Martin reads it. He wants to do it. He's like, I want to do this movie right away instantly because he has that same thing. He understands that loneliness, mm-hmm. that disconnection, that that edge of madness that Travis Bickle has and that Paul Schrader obviously has experienced. Martin Scorsese says he knows that that is. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I want to do this film. But he doesn't, what he, he describes it, he didn't have the juice. He He's done Boxcar Bertha for uh, Roger Corman. Right. And he hasn't done anything else. He hasn't done a big picture. Okay. Nobody knows who he is. And she hasn't done Alice by this time. No. Okay. So, and, and Michael Phillips and Julia Phillips go, we want to do this movie. And they're by the page. They're the people who developed the sting. So mm-hmm. they're going to be really big, but not quite yet. Yeah. And they don't quite have the juice and they don't have a director who has the juice. And Martin Scorsese doesn't have the juice. And a couple of years go by. And in that couple of years, Scorsese makes Alice doesn't live here anymore. Mm-hmm. And mean streets. Right. And they see mean streets and early cut of that. And they go, Oh, this is the guy. Mm-hmm. And then, De Niro makes Godfather 2 and wins the Oscar. And Paul Schrader sells Yakuza to uh, Sidney Pollack. The Robert Mitchum one. Yeah. 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 And so all of this happens in those years. And so suddenly this movie with a nobody screenwriter, a nobody director, a nobody star, all of a sudden is Academy Award winning Robert De Niro. This, and by the way, the Yakuza was sold for huge money. Uh-huh. And uh, and Martin Scorsese coming off of Mean Streets, and they go, "Oh, we got the juice," and <laughs> and, and De Niro's attached right from the beginning, right? Um, and I did, had forgotten. I think I had known it a long time ago that De Niro uh, knew Martin Scorsese grown up. Yeah, they're like friends. Of, I mean, not close, but right. they knew who each other was yeah. and came really out of the same place. I want to say two things, Julia Phillips. Uh, if you've never read her book, you'll no, you'll, you'll never eat lunch in this town again, or you'll never work oh, in this town that's again. That's her. That's her. I have never read it, and that book is. Phenomenal. Uh, I, we uh, uh, when I used to work manage bookstores, that book we could not keep it in stock. Wow. People love the Hollywood stories in there, and so sure. it's a fantastic book. The second thing, the Yakuza is an interesting thing for you to bring up because the Japanese actor who's opposite Robert Mitchum yeah, is the Ken same Tanaka. Right? Yeah, Something is the like same that. actor in Black Rain. Black Rain. Yeah. yeah. And when I found that, out, I was like, oh my god, it's just fantastic. So yeah, I think I'm right about that with Julia Phillips. But I, anyway, I believe you. Yeah. I have no reason to call you a liar. <laughs> well, I've about been wrong this. before. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Fair. Fair. <laughs> um, and so, so they go, go off to start shooting it. Mm-hmm. Um, De Niro, he's working on 1900 at this point. Oh, yeah. And, and he, he is, every time he has time off, he goes to New York and starts driving a cab. Uh-huh. And a, oh, to train. To kind to of train. Getting, right. And apparently, 
pretty good cab driver. Huh. I mean, is it that hard? We Listen, have Uber and Lyft now. It's I essentially the see, same yeah, but thing. But they have they have Google Maps. Oh, I see what you're saying. And Good New York call. and the world is different because <laughs> one of the other things we have to talk about <laughs> yes. is the world of New York that we see in Taxi Driver. Yeah, is completely different from the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, true. And it, it's very much the other film that we saw this world in is French Connection. Yes. This dark, dirty, crime-ridden, super uber-dangerous, mm-hmm. filthy in both the physical way and the uh, sexual way yeah. place. Well, a lot of these films in the 70s profiled that, right? Yeah. Seven Ups. Um, yeah, a number of films did this kind yeah. of exploration stuff. It's really unsettling things, too. Yeah. Now, the fact that they had the juice didn't mean they had a ton of money. It's mm-hmm. a fair, still a fairly small-budget film. They shot it only in a couple of months, I think. Uh, less wow. than a couple of months. Wow. And... Uh, and they did a lot of filming that was really just three or four or five people. Like a lot of the taxi shots is just De Niro driving the cab, Martin Scorsese and Michael Chapman, the DP, huddling in the back, <laughs> and a sound guy literally in the trunk. Wow. Just driving around New York. Doesn't sound dangerous at all. <laughs> Nothing bad could happen. <laughs> no rear-ending issues there. Yeah. Uh, let's hope not. Would you like to get into the film? Yeah, let's do it. Let's get into it. This is among the top opening shots of any movie of all time. Steam rising up, looking like some pit of hell, and the slow motion, low angle taxi cab driving out of the steam set to Bernard Herrmann, his final score. One of the most beautiful pieces and powerful pieces of music you can imagine. Brother, as much as Scorsese gets credit for this movie and De Niro gets credit for this movie and Schrader for his writing, uh, Bernard Herrmann's score is incredible. Just incredible. The movie wouldn't be nowhere near as good or as effective as this mix of dread and uh, off kilter happiness that and, uh, and romance and romance, the, right? Yeah. In those in these cues that he has and throughout the whole loneliness. movie. And yeah. you know what? Just it literally just occurred to me, which yep. is ridiculous. But the last movie that you and I recorded together mm-hmm. was Bernard Herrmann's first score. We oh, Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane. Yeah. And now, oh, how funny. a week later, two weeks later, <laughs> we are recording his last score. Wow. Yeah. Wow. With There's plenty Robert. in between. There are. Yeah. Because Bernard Herrmann, you know, all the Hitchcock films and all yeah. sorts of great movies. And this score, and, and he passed away two days after recording this score. What? Yeah. From a massive heart attack. I hate to break it to all you Star Wars fans. That's how John Williams is going to go out. Oh, <laughs> two days after wow. recording episode nine. Doom John Williams. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, yes. And the, and the score is just, it is powerful yeah. and dissonant and eerie and creepy and unlike anything else in film that I know of. Right. And then you have this, we hear the saxophone, which we're going to hear uh, along with mm-hmm. uh, Travis Bickle all the time. And you have these shots of his eyes in the mirror mm-hmm. that really pulls you into this, that this is a POV movie in a lot of ways, yeah. that we're seeing the world through his eyes. And it is a strange world we're looking out at. And to me, Steve, this is this. And the steam is on purpose. Obviously, oh, everything yeah. everything Scorsese. He's one of these master directors that they teach you in film school. Anything that's in the frame is in the frame on purpose. Anything right. you see is in there. One of the things you need to learn if you're going to analyze film is all the great filmmakers follow this rule. They don't always adhere to it, but ninety five percent of the time they do. Whatever's in the frame is in the frame for a reason. Either either be symbolic or to evoke something from you from your reaction or to uh, accentuate the plot or to push it forward. 
the steam right at the beginning to me feels like a fantasy. We're walking into a fantasy, like you would see, you know, the old uh, old England stuff or Merlin or King Arthur. It, to me, when you see the steam, it's like you're walking into this world, and the way the taxi goes slowly past, and even the ne- the credits in neon yeah. are really interesting in the in the in the uh, mood and atmosphere it creates in you when you're watching it. And then, of course, the eyes, which are yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting you say that because the way Scorsese described this oh. was that he wanted it to feel like that Travis Bickle's vision of the world was a hallucinatory documentary. There you go. Absolutely. Is that it is the real world. Yeah. But it is through this distortion of hallucination. Mm-hmm. And that the steam is a huge part of that. Yeah. And and and, and this is what's going to happen. Like, what's really strange about this movie that we're going to see a lot is we're almost seeing different worlds. Mm-hmm. Because there are times we're seeing the world from a more objective perspective, and Travis Bickle is a person in that. Right. And then there's times, most of the movie, we're seeing it from his perspective and right. how he imagines it. Well, because that's his psyche. I think we're, the whole movie is his, the unsettled, to all the different worlds. He's trying to find where he belongs, where he yeah. fits. And so he tries to put on these different masks, but then underneath there's this ugly truth about him that he cannot escape. No matter how much he puts on that red suit jacket, yeah. He still has to come back to that shitty one bedroom apartment and li- and be unable to sleep and drink all the stuff that he's drinking to, tr- to to just whatever he just fill in his lives. So we see the imbalanced world because he's our he's essentially our narrator through the movie. Yeah. Well, and even beyond going back to a shitty, yeah. shitty apartment, he is always with, trapped within the confines of his mind. Yeah, you know that is the, his perception of the world. Yeah, the cab is his mind. Yeah, yeah. it goes it, that. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. totally, <laughs> totally. So he's going to go into a job interview. That's our first sort of dialogue scene. Yeah. And you know, and you, the fact that you said fantasy and King Arthur, he literally walks out of the steam. Mm-hmm. And Scorsese said he wanted to feel like he was walking out of hell. Yeah. Um, and we go into this job interview, and the camera is handled in a really weird way throughout the whole film. And you see it in the beginning in this scene. And, and one of the things we should say about Scorsese, maybe more than anybody else, yeah. is that he is a film scholar. Mm-hmm is that not only does he love films, I mean, we knew that Spielberg loves films mm-hmm. and all the sorts of directors, Quentin Tarantino loves films, but Scorsese watches films like a, he's encyclopedic and he will say, oh, I got this shot from George Stevens. I mm-hmm. got this shot from Godard. I was mimicking this thing in Shane from Breathless, from you know all these different films, right. from Hitchcock. Um, and so he talks, and there's a lot of Godard in this movie. He The French New Wave mm-hmm. influence is really powerful and and the, the use of jump cuts and camera. You know, we talked, I think in another podcast, I don't remember which one, we talked about um, motivated and unmotivated camera moves. Right. So a motivated camera move is where someone's walking and the camera moves with them or someone looks and the camera sees where they're looking. An unmotivated camera move is where nothing is happening and the camera just moves somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And even in the scene, we see the camera moving in ways that are not connected to anything going on and yeah. it's really off-putting and odd. From the beginning, because you have three different levels, right? You have De Niro standing, you have Spinell sitting, and then yeah. you have... Peter Boyle having a back and forth right, with one of the attack. The so, and we just talked about this with Citizen Kane, the deep focus, rapid, yeah. like it's to see all three things happening at the same time. Your eye is at times not not sure where to go because you're not you don't you don't hear the Peter Boyle dialogue that clear. And then you've got this telephone ringing the whole time with that dude sitting on the right. a stool waiting to answer it. You know, and the great Joseph. And I have to I have to say him over and over again because I love him in Rocky and I love him in The Godfather. Is uh, uh, I forget the character's name. He was uh, Cheech. Cheech in The Godfather. Yeah. That's the same guy. I love that we get to see yeah, some more time with Spinelli. Yeah. Um, and and it's interesting. The first question he asks is, 
what do you want to hack for? Right. And he doesn't say, because I need the money, because I like people, because I like driving. He says, I can't sleep nights. That's a great answer. Some, he, people, some people have that affliction. I'm, I'm, uh, one of our friends has that. He yeah. he can stay up till 6 a.m. It drives him insane. I, I'm very happy I don't have that. I have it. That sounds have like a torture. A Do you really? Oh, yeah. It sounds like torture. Not as bad, not as, bad as it used to be, but mm-hmm. there, there are times where suddenly it's like, and you do the thing, you're lying in bed, and you're going, okay, if I can fall asleep right now, I'll get three hours. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got two and a half hours. It's not good. <laughs> get some sleep. And you go into, sometimes you go into like a weird half sleep. Like, mm-hmm. am I asleep? Am I asleep? Is this? No, I, mean, I think I'm awake. I mean, just it's it's torturous. I'm sorry. Yeah, it doesn't happen. It used to happen to me fairly often. And mm-hmm. now now maybe once or twice a month. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've had nights, maybe a total of 10 to 20 in my entire life. But I've never had like consecutive nights. Well, like and some I can't imagine. Do. And we know. And Travis Bickle, it's every night. <sighs> yeah. That he can't sleep. And I love he says, well, that's what porno theaters are for. <laughs> I didn't know that's what porno theaters are for. Maybe back in the 70s. Maybe back were. in the 70s. Right. And he, uh, we find out a little about him. We find out that he was in the Marines, which I do believe. I yeah. Think that's, that's definitely true. Sure. And that wins him over. Yeah. Because there that's is that camaraderie with over. people who've been before in the service. They, they, you get that little bit of extra credit or consideration. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and there's this one weird moment where they start talking and then the camera just kind of it's kind of a low angle on him and then it just booms up. It yeah. doesn't tilt up. It just goes up all of a sudden yeah. into t- an entirely different shot. And one of the things they're doing is, is that almost through the entire film, when we have shots of Robert De Niro, he's alone in the frame. Mm-hmm. And when you have shots of other people, it's usually over the shoulder. So you see Robert De Niro shoulder in someone else's frame or Robert De Niro in the background of someone else's frame. So he's always isolated yeah. and he's always in their frames. And that is exactly the opposite of standard filmmaking. Like basic filmmaking, you usually, whatever we do, we do it even. So if I was filming this scene with you and I talking, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do a single of you, and it was on a 35 millimeter lens or whatever it was, then I would turn around and use the same lens on me and the same scale and the same size so that we cut together really easily. I wouldn't yeah. shoot you in an over the shoulder and me in a single and you on one lens and me on another <laughs> lens. That would be weird. And that's exactly what we see throughout Taxi Driver. Wow. Yeah. Just always looking different because we want him isolated from the world. And you can break these rules when you are a master filmmaker. Yes. Yeah. In your mind already, you understand what what the tenets of filmmaking are. But when you break the rules, you break them in a way that's uh, interesting and artistic. But my students cannot do that. (laughs) Um, Are you listening? You cannot do that. (laughs) Well, if you prove to me that you're a master filmmaker, then you're alive. Maybe. All right. Yeah. Um, and then he, he gets the job and You're he a tough walks teacher, out. man. You're a tough and, teacher. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not really that true. Um, and the camera, like, moves with him for a while, yeah. and then it leaves him. He yeah. goes and looks at some other stuff, and then it finds him again. Very strange things that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, he walks out of the frame and, uh, and walks down the street, and we have these dissolved jump cuts as he moves forward, mm-hmm. which I think he said was from George Stevens from Shane, oh, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, which yep. I just watched over the weekend again. I haven't seen it in 20 years. <sighs> That kid annoys the shit out of me. Other oh, really? than that, I annoy them. I love the movie to pieces, but that kid annoys the shit out of me. Gotcha. But he's drinking. Like at this point, he's drinking. Right? It's they don't make a big deal about it in the movie, but he, you see him like pulling oh, he's flasks got a, he's out. Got a, he's he's yeah. boozing absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't matter. I mean, it's not like his job requires hand-eye coordination or concentration. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he never drinks in the cab. To be fair, yeah. as far as we know, as far as he we does know, take yeah. pills in the cab. Yes, he does. Yeah. Yes, he does. Um, we're back in his apartment. Mm-hmm. And we start to hear his voiceover, and we get... May 10th. Thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. Yeah. This is some dark... 
dark uh, voiceover. His voiceover is fantastic. Yeah. And uh, today I almost sent you a video of me doing some of his voiceovers. I was driving oh, really? in the car just to mess with you. <laughs> yeah, but I couldn't get, like, I couldn't remember the speed because I was using my phone and I, I can't record my video while I'm looking at dialogue and driving. And driving. <laughs> <laughs> but, there's, but there was a turn where I was like, oh, this would be funny if I sent this to Steve before we record this. Great. Um, yeah. I was, we actually Here's a man it. who would not sit down or whatever, or stay down, whatever. Yeah, I, I watched it last night. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a guest of the Cinephiles joined us, which is Dave, in addition to my wife, a guest oh. of the Cinephiles, but Dave Rapp was with us. How funny. And Dave said, I wonder if uh, Watchmen took it from this because the Roshark's first lines from Watchmen totally. are very much like Travis Bickle. That may make sense. There's Absolutely a, makes sense. There's a lot of Travis Bickle in mm-hmm. Roshark. That's so funny. I was watching the National Championship with Dave Rapp and I said, I have to go home and watch. Taxi driver, right after this. Well, and he came over. To, he came over to our house last night. How yeah. ironic! Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Uh, all right, and then we're out and driving, and the shots of the cab driving are so cool. Yeah. Low angle shots off the mirror, off the on duty sign, and then the POV shots of just the streets of New York, which you know they weren't staged. Those yeah. are just real shots of New York. Yeah. They're just amazing, and his voiceover. I don't know what the darkest line in voiceover of all time is, but... All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. Yeah, that's some... Yeah. That's dark. And and you get the window into this guy, you know? And the thing is, throughout the whole movie, he's an unsettling character, but he also has this weird kind of charm to him. There's a weird kind of charm to De Niro that you can't deny when you're watching, or else, or else we would hate this movie. We'd hate yeah. this guy. We wouldn't want to uh, understand him, right? And But there's a kind of interesting charm to De Niro that is at times like, as Sybil Shepherd says later in the film, and we'll get to it, I suppose, the contrast, the contradiction. He's a walking contradiction. Yeah. And he really is, you well, know? I think the people making this film, really, they all said they made it because they felt they had to make it. Yeah, yeah. And most of them felt like this isn't going to do well and that probably the world is just going to reject this. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really surprised them was not only did they not reject it, but people identified with De Niro. Yeah. You know, with Travis Pickle. Mm-hmm. And he is in every way... You know, they describe him as a psychopath. He is. And And, yeah. And yet you're drawn into Mm -hmm. this guy. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Because we all live in this world of black. We want to live in this world of black and white, happy, utopian, the idea of what is good and what is right. But we all know the world is actually gray and at times a very difficult gray that we have trouble navigating because we have to put ahead uh, rules or laws that work for a majority of people and it can be very difficult when those who are caught on the bad end of that of the law uh, are hurt and so but we see these other people get so what he's looking as he's watching and to me steve it also struck me that this is a shark circling his prey. There was something about the way the oh, taxi moved. Totally, it totally. felt like a shark just because a shark doesn't attack right off the bat. You know this. A shark circles around, kind of hunts, the, and then boom, hits the prey when it's no, the really right time. No, really, shark attacks off the bat. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're they're uh, they're opportunity hunters, so they'll be they like will sit around on the bottom. And that's what I mean. Look up. So that's what I mean. Yeah. No, I guess that's true. Yeah, they're looking for their prey. Yes. Once they find yes. their prey, they go get it. I forgive me. I no, think no, no, you it's were okay. correct. I said it wrong. I just want to make sure you, you, you're the 
the nautical expert. I'm just trying to make sure I get it right. <laughs> I don't so. think I'm a nautical expert. <laughs> but yeah, um, but that's what you that's like even the fin of the car felt like a shark going ah, through the water. Point. So it was just interesting. Well, and 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 the thing is is like he's chosen a profession that puts him in constant contact with humanity. Right. But not in any way that he connects with them. Yeah. He's always close to but disconnected from a whole bunch of life and right now mm-hmm. we're going to have his first he's going to pick up his first ride now his first ride was supposed to be martin scorsese's mom oh which they shot yeah and they put her in the movie oh that's they a shot her out instead the first ride is this guy that they pick up that's got a girl who's mm-hmm. like you know hurry up you do your job right you're going to get a big tip yeah we don't exactly know what's going on with this woman we don't know is she his girlfriend, his wife, his mm-hmm. a prostitute. Yeah. We don't really know, but there's definitely some shenanigans going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get a sense that he gets gets the opportunity to or has the burden of witnessing some weird stuff going yeah. on in the back of his cab. Well, he does say whenever I sometimes after the shift, I have to clean the cum and the blood and sometimes the blood off the back yeah. of the car. And you're just like, man, that's a that's terrible nasty. existence. Yeah. You're, really you know, nasty. you're cleaning up after people. By the way, that guy in the suit in the back seat yeah. is the writer of the book Raging Bull. <laughs> that's who that is. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so after he drops off his cab and has to, as you say, clean it up from various <laughs> bodily fluids, he goes off to a beautiful movie theater called The Show and Tell. Yes. And walks in and starts talking to the woman behind the counter mm-hmm. there, wants was- to know her name. Can I help you? Yeah, what's your name? My name is Travis. That's nice. What can I do for you? Well, I can know what your name is. What's your name? Give me a break. Well, you can tell me what your name is. I'm not going to do anything. You, know, just... you want me to call the manager? Oh, you don't have to call the manager. I mean, I'm just asking. Troy! Who is Diane Abbott. Diane Abbott, really? Who plays the his uh, lo- a love interest in King Comedy. Oh, Yeah, that's wow. Diane Abbott. So, yeah. It is an uncomfortable scene. Very uncomfortable. And especially in light of 2018, yep. Steve, yep. when we have women talking about how they're constantly hit on, they constantly, no matter, they're just trying to do their job, men are always trying to hit on them in inopportune ways. Well, in particular, when you're the uh, working the counter at a porn <laughs> movie theater. It kind of goes with the, the job. The, I hate the, to break the, it to you. The yeah. kind of guys that are walking in. I mean, yeah. just walking in like, hey, what's your name? And then she won't tell him the name. And mm-hmm. then he's like, come on, I'm not going to do anything. Like, these are yeah. not the things to say. Right. And right. it's very clear, by the way, this is the nine millionth time yep. that she's been through this. And she is just like calling the manager and, and he backs down. She just says Troy so quickly. Yeah. I love the, it feels so natural, man. Yeah. 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 I love they have chuckles too. I didn't know that. <laughs> chuckles. And he gets, a, you know, Clark, he gets a Clark bar, Clark bar. goobers, popcorn, uh, cola, uh, RC cola for a dollar eighty five. Well, that tells you the, um, the product placement they were only able to get was not the high end shit. I don't think this is product placement. <laughs> you don't think what? I think this is just the stuff they used. There's no way they wouldn't have they would have allowed them to use that kind of stuff. Even you know, I RC Cola were different. Really? I, I, I'm not sure. Okay. If this is something because this came up once before in another movie. I don't remember okay. which one. All right. And I said the same thing, but I actually have not researched. Uh. So I probably should find that. We out should find that. Yeah. But it, it sounds like because it's yeah. all lower end. Yeah. Of the on the candy space, even the Clark bar is not necessarily the number one you know candy bar you go for. So I'm just <laughs> somebody saying. does. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure so. there's a I'm Clark sure. bar fan page out on the internet somewhere. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> he goes into the theater, and this was shot in a real porn theater. There was real porn on the screen, and what they had to do is they had to take it out with an optical. Yeah, you can tell. Um, yeah. Uh, so so that we're not actually seeing it. Um, and uh, he has this line that we're saying: Twelve hours of work, and I still can't sleep. 
damn. Days go on and on. They don't end. Man, driving a cab all night and then in the morning going into an all 24-hour porn theater and you can't sleep, Mm -hmm. that is a rough... That's rough. Yeah, I used to work an overnight shift at a television station programming, master programming commercials. I would... It was a struggle to stay awake from 6 to 8 o'clock. Yeah. So I would go in at 10 or 11 do the the news and then program the rest of the night and it ha- and that's when i watched all those movies that my friend gotcha. gave me mini film school that i was in um and then by six o'clock though it was everything to keep me awake until eight then i got home and fell asleep so to me i can't imagine 12 hours and then still not being able to sleep that would drive me insane in a porn theater yeah. with dudes jerking off next to you <laughs> yes. like that is not talk about cleaning the cum off the, off oh, the seats oh my god hey Okay. By, by the way, we, we should have put the warning at the beginning of the podcast that we're going to get into some stuff. It's this, Taxi Driver. It's Taxi Driver, friends. Yeah. Uh, he goes back home and there's this line that I love, which is, All my life needed was a sense of someplace to go. I don't believe that one should devote his life to morbid self-attention. I believe that someone should become a person like other people. Yeah. Now, a person like other people, I think about that a lot. Because I've always thought about this, is mm-hmm. that, I think we see, when we look inside ourselves, we see ourselves as filled with holes and inconsistencies and we're insecure and we're unsure and we don't quite know what we're doing all the time. And when we look outside at other people, they all seem solid. Yeah. Like they know what they're doing. Like they've got this figured out on some level. And of course, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But a person like other people, no, you are like other people. Yeah. This is how we all are, you know? Yeah. But it's also his observant nature, right? Yeah. What he thinks he sees. But, you know, that's an interesting because... I think those of us who are more sensitive or artists or whatever, whatever you want to call whatever term, I'm trying to be, I'm not trying to be cocky or again or anything like that, but whatever term you want to call us, we see the world differently than like Joe Schmo half the time because he's just trying to get through his life. And so it's our job as the way we're built to observe other people and be like, oh, I want to be like well, that. I want to catch like that. I agree. Where, where I think other people observe and they want to go, I want to get that level. I don't think I'm necessarily go, oh, I just want to be a human. I would say I would say it slightly differently because okay. I would there's a difference between I would say it's definitely true that some people are observers yeah. and some people really aren't. Yeah. You know. But what I would say is different. It's like what surprised me is Harry Potter comes out, this is a strange analogy, mm-hmm. and becomes the most popular book in the history of the world. Sure. And Harry Potter is the conflicted worried about you know the perceptions of him right. insecure he i relate as a nerdy kid mm-hmm. i like go harry potter is like me i relate to him right why does it become the most successful book of all time and and i think the answer is that even that normal joe guy even the captain of the football team mm. and the prom queen and the you know businessman and the rich guy and all those people they actually all feel like harry potter some of the time. Yeah. Like Even you said, though from the outside, they don't now, but that being said, they don't become observers like you and I became right. necessarily. Right. But they still feel that way. But mm-hmm. I, mean, I think him doing that, like I want to be people like other people. Yeah. Um, that's, that just tells you right there. This is a man trying to find his place. Absolutely. In the world. Well, and this right? points out, I mean, this is a film about loneliness among mm-hmm. other things. And like this idea is what points out what I, I would call like the paradox of loneliness. Yeah. Which is that, Basically, everybody feels lonely. Mm-hmm. I've never talked to anybody and had that kind sure. of conversation who doesn't feel lonely, not just some of the time, but a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Even people with big families and relationships yeah. and big cities with big groups of friends like we have. Right. And the great paradox is, is that, well, 
we all are feeling the same way and we're all next to each other <laughs> and yet bridging the gap mm-hmm. and solving our own loneliness is almost an impossible thing to do some of the time. Well, I think sometimes if you speak it, you almost speak it into existence and it's almost too much to handle. Yeah. 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 And well, everyone's lonely in different ways absolutely. as well. So that's the thing. Well, because there's there's Paul Schrader who realized he hadn't spoken to a human for three weeks. Right. And there might be people who speak to humans every single day. Yep. They're constantly surrounded by family and all these people and mm-hmm. they're still lonely. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm. I know nothing about that. Yeah, me neither. Go <laughs> Next. Let's meet Betsy. Hello. He says the first time he saw her at Ballantyne headquarters, she was wearing a white dress. Mm. Did you think of Citizen Kane and Bernstein? Oh, no. That line comes out. She was wearing a white dress. How interesting, and my man. my brain immediately goes to Bernstein. Damn, that works so well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know if they From Citizen Kane, that. for those who are... From like, Citizen yeah, Kane. Yeah. Go back and listen to our month of Kane <laughs> to find out what we're talking about. <laughs> that guy we're not doing the month of Taxi Driver. Oh, Jesus. I uh-huh. handle it. We wouldn't survive. Um, yep. Uh, and by the way, when we watch her going in, and the shot is beautiful, mm-hmm. the first shots of Sybil Shepherd going into these campaign headquarters, Martin Scorsese sitting on the stoop yep. outside the door. Yeah, I caught him this time. I didn't see it. Dave Rapp saw it. I yep. didn't notice him. Yep. Um, and uh, and we go in, and we're hearing him talk, and there's this beautiful dissolve from her to him writing about her, mm-hmm. and that is from Jean-Luc Godard. Oh, okay. It's a lift from Godard. They cannot touch her. Her. Oof. Yeah. And what has he done? Does he know anything about this real person? No, he has, you know, put her on a pedestal. He's like created this whole world of her that is all in his mind. Once again, yeah. she's the angel in this a wasteland of people, you know, and he thinks like if he can get with her, he might save himself or, yeah. you know, be above them even more. I don't know. But he totally like fantasizes what she is. And I, of course, have never done that. <laughs> um, right. We go into the campaign. None of us have ever done that. We yeah. go into the campaign headquarters and there we meet Sybil Shepard, who mm-hmm. we saw walk in, and Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks is so damn funny. Mm-hmm. He's an American treasure, man. He is. Um, one of the movies I absolutely want to do is Lost in America. Okay. So much. It'll be one of those where I watch for the first time. I've never seen that movie. I, heard, I know you haven't. It's so damn funny. <laughs> well, then I will I, throw broadcast news out there. We eventually have to tackle that. Sure. Yeah, I, I, love that I, I haven't seen it since the 80s. God. I own it. It's Criterion. I, I have it. I, I really it liked it. I it's just great. haven't gone back to it that much. All right. Yeah. So we have a date. And maybe we should do those back to back. We'll do maybe. Broadcast Ruse and, Lo- and, Lo- and Lost in America. Maybe we should get Albert to come on. Oh, I would love it. Do you know? So I remember here. So I heard um, it was on uh, Mark Maron's podcast. Oh, great. Uh, he had Carl Reiner on. Yeah. He's had Rob Reiner on. Reiner's great. He's had Mel Brooks on. So Albert Brooks grew up right like next door to the Reiners. Oh, yeah. And Albert Brooks was Rob Reiner. They were like best friends. Mm-hmm. And so Albert Brooks would come over and hang out. And Carl Reiner's best friend, of course, is Mel Brooks. And right. so Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft are hanging out with Carl Reiner. And over would come Rob Reiner and his best friend, Albert Brooks. <laughs> and all three of those people, Rob Reiner, Carl Reiner, and Mel Brooks, all said that 12-year-old Albert Brooks is the funniest human they had ever seen in their entire <laughs> lives. And that, to me, is like Mel Brooks wow. and Carl Reiner yeah. saying, this kid is the funniest person and anyone has ever seen it's incredible and he was this bizarre stand-up comic at this time in the mid 70s mm-hmm. and doing the saturday i think he was doing the saturday mm-hmm. live movies at this time and for scorsese to cast him in this movie is so odd and he is like in a different film mm-hmm. and thank god because yeah. you need some lightness he's yeah. so funny 
He's doing this monologue about talking on the phone about campaign buttons or something, all of which is improv that he made up. <laughs> and Paul Schrader thanked him. He said, you know what? That's the one character in the movie I didn't know. No. And you created something great. And thank That's you awesome. so much for improving all that stuff. Yeah, yeah sometimes uh, actors matter sometimes, people. They do. Yeah. I thought of 18 horrible things to say and then yeah. I just decided to move on. <laughs> they do matter, absolutely. Because they're working for this senator and uh, mm-hmm. Sybil Shepherd seems to be maybe Albert Brooks's boss. Um, I think they're I think they're Equal. both equals, but they're managers of different departments. Maybe. That's what I think, yeah. Yeah. Now look, we have to emphasize the mandatory welfare program. That's the issue that should be pushed. First push the man, then the issue. Senator Palantine is a dynamic man, an intelligent, interesting, fresh, fascinating forgot sexy. man. I did not forget sexy. Do you get the sense that Sybil Shepherd kind of likes the senator, Palantine? Yes. I think when he calls her out for not saying sexy. Yeah. Uh, it's of a clear indication. Yeah, I think so too. There's a, all sorts of little b- bits where, like, when she says, uh, "Look out and see that cab driver," mm-hmm. and he goes, "Okay, I'm looking." She says, "Put your glasses on." He said, "Okay, I'll put them on." And he's already got them on. <laughs> it's just really, I don't. Albert Brooks is one of those people where I don't know why that's funny. Yeah, but he is just funny. But she knew that he yeah, he had them on, so they have this little. They're, they're just having a little banter, which they probably do to just yeah. get through the day. Have these moments that you know you always find that one person in the office that, that understands your humor, and you can just have these moments between each other. Do you like? Are you a Sybil Shepherd fan? Uh, I'm a Sybil Shepherd fan as an actress. How about that? Okay. Yeah, I hear too many terrible stories about her behind the scenes, so I'm not the biggest fan of that. But in this film, she is beautiful, absolutely she is. beautiful, and very natural. And that's who you look for. Like she was in uh, Last Picture Show, very natural. I think in those two movies, see, I don't, I am not the biggest fan. I, I love Moonlighting. I love I Moonlighting, moonlighting but I don't think she's the greatest actress. Right. But in Last Picture Show and in this, I think she is sparkling mm-hmm. and and natural and relaxed yeah. and really good. Yeah, you know. Um, so and I, have a great. She's having a great inner monologue too, Steve. That's, oh yeah, that I really enjoy. There's a lot. There's definitely a lot going mm-hmm. on, and what's going on right now is she's looking out the window, and there's this cab driver mm-hmm. staring at her. Mm-hmm. So Albert Brooks goes, "You want me to get rid of him?" And he goes outside, and uh, <laughs> and as soon as he starts talking to De Niro, De Niro hits the gas and drives away. Mm-hmm. I love, by the way, that Albert Brooks says, uh, "I'll be the male in the relationship," <laughs> and she says, "Good luck." And I don't need good luck. Thank you. Oh yes, you do. You just think you don't. And it's funny. This is 1970. What six? Already playing on this idea of gender stereotypes, right? Yeah. The great comedians have always found the joke of the gender stereotype. And we're just now getting around to it as uh, in mass as a society. But it's always been there. And I think this scene is important too, Steve, because she doesn't encourage him to get rid of Travis. No. So there's a little bit of the good girl that likes the bad boy here. And I don't think it is a negative way. It's just the excitement of it, right? Because this is, seems like the kind of person who's kind of had everything kind of laid out for her and she's done what she's done and she's strived to achieve the greatest. And then you have this kind of guy come in who's a little different, so. A little different. Well, <laughs> well we don't know that yet. Fair, Steve, fair, yes. Fair. He's going to be pretty different. Uh, he goes off, there's more driving and again, the, mm-hmm. he have these beautiful POV shots. And one of the things he seems to be looking at now is romantic things. Yeah. So he's out looking at romantic things. And, uh, and, and by the way, when De Niro's driving the cab for research, mm-hmm. it's he's even driving it after he had just won the Oscar for Godfather 2. Oh, my God. So a guy gets in the cab who's an actor. Yeah. And is looking up at the... <laughs> because he has his, yeah. his hack license yeah. up on the, you know, the wall. And he goes... <laughs> I thought it was because it says Robert De Niro. 
And he and he says, "Are things really that hard? <laughs> Do you need some help, brother? Do you need some I mean, <laughs> you just won the Oscar. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Can't um, you melt that thing down? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's have dinner with the other drivers. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating about this scene is the incredible disconnection of Travis Bickle. Yeah, he doesn't respond quickly. He's always looking at something else. Mm-hmm. He's always and and what's weird and this is what I mean by like the we're within his world and then we're also within the world of other people with him in it. Because mm-hmm. and I don't know. I'm sure you have been around the crazy person. Yes. Where you're like, what's going on in there? Well, I hate to break it to you, but everybody in this scene is not normal. (laughs) And so, and I've been in this room with not normal people. Yeah. In numerous jobs or walks of my life. So this is a scene that I know very well. Now, there are times that I've sat by myself on purpose because these people are a little too weird. A little too much. But he is doing it because... uh, like he's trying to find his place. So he is not going to walk into a situation and ingratiate himself with people right off the bat. No. Well, and I don't know what he... And Doughboy is not, is not someone you want to get to know and be friends with. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's, it's a strange group. I mean, Peter mm-hmm. Boyle, the great Peter Boyle. The great Peter Boyle. Yeah. The late great Peter Boyle. Um, tells a very off-color story about a yes. sexual exploit in the back of a cab <laughs> that you can have feelings about. And then he's surprisingly advanced about homosexual rights. I know. He's There's surprisingly this, this advanced. Thing about, well, in California, in California, they have to play alimony. They really well, they're got way it. Ahead they're way ahead of us. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> By the way, the actor who plays uh, Doughboy is the father of Bimmel, of the girl in Silence of the Lambs. When, he, when, he, when, oh. when Jodie Foster goes to look through the house, she is. he's the father. Oh, he's the actor who wow. plays the father. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and I'm and when they start trying to try to engage Travis Bickle in conversation, he doesn't quite respond. Yeah. Travis. Travis. You run all over town, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you handle some pretty rough customers, huh? Yeah. You carry a piece? No. You need one? No. If you ever need one, I know a fella can get you a real nice deal. Lots of shit around. He puts some Alka-Seltzer in a cup, and then we just kind of zoom in on the cup for a while mm-hmm. and see that. Again, that's also a reference to Godard. Oh, wow. Um, there's a lot of Godard in here. Okay. Um, but the thing that Scorsese said about how he wanted to film the movie was he wanted to film the movie the way he sees the world. Mm. And Travis or Scorsese? Scorsese. Interesting. Okay. And what he says is... And I get this. Is there times, I'm sure you've done this too, Mm -hmm. where you're in a place and you just suddenly start looking at a thing and your whole consciousness goes to that thing. Isn't that interesting? Maybe some person that's walking by. Maybe it's some, and you just spend a little time and maybe it only took a second in real time, Mm -hmm. but, or a half a second or a split second. But, but in your mind, you spend a little while in there and that's what happens when you just go into that elk cell. That's where his brain is. And then we're back with the drivers, and they don't know that any weird thing happened. You know, <laughs> they might know that the person they're talking with is operating at different speed, right? But they don't know where they are. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a, it's a weird scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Doughboy wants to sell him a piece of Errol Flynn's bathtub. <laughs> That's so strange. This is really strange. strange. In the back, by the way, there's a political poster, oh. and the poster is of the opposition to Palantine. Oh, okay. And that is the AD of the film. That's <laughs> who's on that picture. Great. 
we go back to pa- campaign headquarters. There's this weird thing about how would you light a match with missing a bunch of fingers? Yeah, right. That's all invented by them. On of the course. Yeah. And by the way, so they're doing it, and you have Albert Brooks with a match in his mouth, and he's trying to drag the little sandpaper thing across his face. I was like, going, man, I hope he doesn't light it, because he's going to like have a lit flame right yeah. under his nose. It's well, so painful. I, I hate to break you. I'm sure he wasn't trying to light it, because he, he was so obviously off. You didn't want to light his face off. Albert Brooks is not a method actor? That's right. De Niro that's right. would have been trying to light it. Of course he would have been, yeah. And he would have lit that. He would have practiced it for weeks. He would have. <laughs> um, uh, and... Uh, in comes Travis. Yeah. The camera the camera moves when he enters. Mm-hmm. There's like a dollying back, zooming back thing with him. And then we switch to his POV that drives in on Sybil Shepherd in a very aggressive and kind of creepy way. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing about this. This is, by the way, going to be him at his most charming, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And there's still that thing about him that's like, oh, yeah, weird. Well, there's a boldness to him, too, that has to be almost respected because he doesn't walk in sheepishly. He walks in straight ahead. He knows, and he goes, I'm going to volunteer. I don't want to volunteer with you. I want to volunteer with her. And Sybil or the character plays it in a way that she's interested in this guy. She has interest in him because she knows it's the tax driver that's been watching her. And so there is a little adventure here to take with him. And as you said earlier, Something about her interested in bad guys. Yeah, absolutely. A little boys. danger. A little danger. A little danger. Yeah. Well, and the thing, and we know, I think we can be pretty sure that Travis Bickle rehearsed these lines in his head. Oh, sure. A long time. Mm-hmm. He knew this was weeks in the making. Well, what else are you going to do if you're awake all day? All <laughs> That's night? a fair point. Yeah. He's sitting in that porn room saying, what am I going to say to that girl <laughs> in the white dress? And he is really pretty persuasive. Would you like to come have some coffee and pie with me? Why? Why? Yeah. I'll tell you why. I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot. I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. And I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. That means nothing. And then when I came inside and I met you, I saw in your eyes and I saw the way you carried yourself that you're not a happy person. And I think you need something. And if you want to call it a friend, you can call it a friend. You're going to be my friend? Yeah. It is bold. People re- some people respond to boldness, man. And also, he does the classic primal male thing. Now, you see this in species, you see this in animals, you see this in men as well. He denigrates the neck, the male that is the closest to her. He he, he systematically does. denigrates he him and insults him and kind of undercuts him, so he is not seen as a viable suitor for her. It's just it's classic shit. Well, and it's fascinating as watching De Niro and Simple Shepherd in this scene. Mm-hmm. You also should just rewind the scene yeah. and watch <laughs> Albert, Albert Brooks, Brooks. Yes. because he is peeking out from behind the the wall and up from under the desk, and he's over on the side. Of course, it is so funny. Yeah, I, I'm going to ask an obvious question here. How does Albert Brooks feel about Sybil Shepherd, about <laughs> Betsy? Well, I think he has that thing that he has in in broadcast news as well. This like nerdy love for the beautiful girl that he's never going to get right. not in not in the 80s and the 70s certainly in the 2000s and the 2010s the right. nerdy guys get all the, the beautiful girls now but like back then it really was about observing and hoping yeah. if I could wear her down or catch her at the right time maybe she'd go out with me so you become that friend first for a while 
And then you make that switch because that's what people tell me all the time that sometimes you can be friends with someone for 20 years and all of a sudden it clicks and you have this romantic. I've never had that experience, but I know a lot of people that do. So maybe he's just that. People play the long game all the time. But I think he also respects her as a person. There's no question that he does. Absolutely. It isn't just the physical attraction. She's very intelligent, very command of her space, and that's attractive. Well, and I think they obviously have a lovely relationship. Yes, very much so. They have a great relationship. Um, There's one moment I want to go back to. There's this strange moment that happens where he, he says... I see you here and I see a lot of people around you. And then he does this gesture and we go into this top-down shot of the desk, mm-hmm. which is very strange. Last top-down we shot we saw was when he hands in his paperwork mm-hmm. when he's in the job interview. And we're going to see top-down shots and they come in in this very um, noticeable way. Yes. And then they go out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they mean exactly, but I wanna, I'm going to point them out as we go along mm-hmm. because there's something very interesting about the choice to do that. Mm-hmm. And then he says, you know, I want to take you out maybe to pie and coffee. And she agrees. Eventually, yeah. She, he, she says, well, if I get, off, I get off at 4 o'clock and if you're here. And he's like, oh, I'll be here. Yeah. And she's like, I have no doubt you will be. Uh, and after 4, we mm-hmm. go out to a diner. Mm-hmm. He narrates what they have, which is he had uh, apple pie with cheddar cheese, which is, uh, I forget what regions that comes from. It's a very, have you ever t- had it? No, thanks. It's interesting. And don't confuse my mouth, man. <laughs> <laughs> Look, sometimes a little savory with a little sweet, a little buttery, a little fruity. That's not my jam. But no, it's it's. I would rather have some ice cream or some whipped cream. But yeah. I respect the, you know, whatever. Oh, you know what I should have found out? What's that? That's going to tell us where Travis Bickle's from. Oh, good point. I think it's, I think it's Midwestern. Oh. Um, but I'm not sure. I should have researched that. Okay. That's a good point. Fair. And, they're, and they're shooting this. This is in Columbus Circle mm. where they're shooting. And that just shows how the world has changed. There is no cheap diner like that in Columbus Circle. Anymore? Columbus, no. Oh. Columbus Circle is billion dollar property oh, values now. Yeah. now okay. The world has changed. Yeah. Uh, they start chatting. They make a little joke about getting organized. And yeah. Sybil Shepard makes a joke. He doesn't quite get it. And then he goes after, just as you say, he goes after Albert Brooks's character. Mm-hmm. I don't like that guy you work with. Do you like the guy you work with? He's okay. Yeah, but I know. But do you like him? Well, he's funny and he's very good at his job. He's okay. Oh, he does have a few problems. Uh, I would say he has quite a few problems. When I walked in and I saw you two sitting there, I could just tell by the way you were both relating that there was no connection whatsoever. And I felt when I walked in that there was something between us. There was an impulse that we were both following. So that gave me the right to come in and talk to you. Yeah. Wow. That is some stuff. And then she says he's right. I wouldn't be here if, if I didn't. Yep. But he, what's interesting throughout the scene too, Steve, is that he knows he's punching above his weight, and the oh, two yeah. or two or three times about eight levels. Yeah, right. And the two or three times, which is master acting, if you're an actor or even a, or if you're a person who appreciates acting, watch De Niro in this scene. There are two or three moments where she says something, and De Niro betrays this feeling of angry uncomfortableness. Yeah. This feeling you're making me feel stupid, yeah. right? Because he's not. He's not composed enough to understand that that's, that's not necessarily what she's doing. She's just talking because she's educated and she's just talking regular. Well, she's not trying to make No, she's not. That's what I'm saying. She's yeah. not trying to, but he feels a little bit of that. And it starts to erode this angelic view he has of her. Yeah. Right? Well, and the thing too, and we see this before, we saw it in the very beginning when uh, the interviewer guy said, you want a moonlight? And he says, I just, I just want to work on Yeah, what does time. that mean? What does moonlight? I don't know what moonlight means. Yeah. Travis Bickle is not the most educated of guys. No. He no. doesn't, he's not out there paying attention to the world. Right. 
And uh, she compares him to Chris, the song from Chris Christopherson. Mm-hmm. Who's that? The songwriter. He's a prophet. He's a prophet and a pusher. Partly truth, partly fiction. Walking contradiction. You're saying that about me? Well, who else would I be talking about? I'm no pusher. I never have pushed. No, no, just the part about the contradictions. You are that. I don't know what that song is. Do you? No, I don't know the song. No, yeah. but I mean, it makes sense for Chris Christopherson at this in during the seventies to sing yeah. songs like that. But like, well, and it certainly makes sense about Travis Bickle, mm-hmm. um, which well, he finds offensive. Yeah, he does. He's like, "What are you trying to say about yeah. me?" Um, and he says, "Maybe they're going to go to a movie, and you know what? This is a pretty good first date." <sighs> yeah. Do you think? Because we've both seen it a few times. Yeah. How does the audience feel? How do we feel about this first well, date? Who hasn't been? The, well, the date seems actually sweet, even with the flashes of anger, I think, or frustration that he feels stupid in certain moments compared to her. The date still feels sweet. So we have this other level of Travis that we haven't seen before, you know, and like a demon, he's wearing red. <laughs> so there is this feeling that he is still off center. And she even calls him on it, saying he's a walking contradiction. But it's still a sweet scene. It's but then we start to maybe dread the situation because well, we've seen this other side of. Well, Travis. that's what I was going to say. It's like yeah. I think it is a sweet scene, but I think it just leaves you in a sense of dread because mm-hmm. you know this is not real. This right. cannot work. This cannot work out. Mm-hmm. This is and whatever he was able to summon in himself to become the person he becomes, who walks into that campaign office and then has this snack with her at the diner. Yeah, that is not him. No. And that, um, he's not going to maintain that. Well, that's know? him trying to be a real person, yeah. right? Like Pinocchio trying to be a boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was reading about, uh, <laughs> there's a guy who is a very well-known journalist who uh, whose son has two sons who are schizophrenic, and mm-hmm. the oldest one committed suicide. Oh. And they thought he was doing pretty well, when in fact he really wasn't doing well. Wow. And, and now they have this younger son, and they're just terrified, of mm-hmm. course, because he's also schizophrenic. And, and what he talked about was... That someone who has mental problems has learned how to work really hard in order for people to not know mm. that this is what they're going through. Sure. To appear, oh, this is how I'm supposed to behave in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. And regardless of what's going on in my head all the time, I'm going to like just do what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And that's Travis very much in this scene. He has worked really hard to present a certain thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what, so what, one of the things that's interesting about this film is that this film seems so ahead of its time. And so timely mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. because we didn't have the term PTSD right when this film came out. I mean, we certainly knew that, that that veterans coming back from war, and this is a Vietnam veteran who had yeah. been a Marine coming back, you know, that they deal with deal with problems, um, but we didn't really understand them as well as we do today, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll understand them much better in the future. And then also, like we live in the world, and this is something we'll get into is. Of mass shootings. Yeah. You know, and those ideas and what happens to someone as they go down these pathways of mental illness and desire for violence and how they're seeing the world. Travis Bickle, man. Yeah. And now I remember what I was going to say, because it ties into what you just said, Steve. I don't feel dread just for Sybil Shepard. This time around, I felt dread for him. Oh, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, in the past, I've seen him as just this guy who's going to lose it and do what he does at the end of the movie. But this time around, I found more compassion, for lack of a better term, 
to try to understand him and try to stop him. I definitely feel that. Right? And we, we see that later on when he has that conversation with Peter Boyle by the text cab outside. He's desperate to stop this happening to himself, but he can't stop it. He doesn't have the tools right. to stop it. I think PTSD is a way to, is, is, is a great connection to make about him, that he may be going through this. Well, and a, he, how many people went through it and couldn't explain it to themselves in the 70s? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, how do you? How yeah. do you deal with... And what's interesting, too, about him is on a fundamental level, he wants to be a hero. Yes. Yes. Now, as warped of a hero as he can be, yeah. but he does. But he, well, he frames the world as good guys and bad guys and sees himself mm-hmm. as one of the good guys. He does. Absolutely. Right. As messed up as that is. Well, every villain thinks they're doing the yeah. right thing. But not every villain goes and buys a Chris Christopherson album, which is what he does <laughs> he next. He does, yes. And he calls Betsy. They agree they're going to go to a movie. Yeah. And think, the only thing he forgot to ask was her last name, but things are going pretty well. Yeah. And then what happens next? He's driving his cab, and who should get into his cab <laughs> but Betsy's boss, yep. Senator Palantine, mm-hmm. who he recognizes, and he just brightens up. He says, I'm one of your biggest supporters. Yeah. I tell everybody they have to vote for you. Why, thank you. Travis, this scene is so funny. Well, this and this is where you ask, why is this movie funny? This scene is funny. Yes, but I mean it's weird. It's also uncomfortable. Oh, totally. Yeah, right. It is very because because what's funny is is you could see Travis putting on this certain kind of thing because he doesn't know anything about the senator. No, not at all. Not at all. He's just in love with Betsy. Right. Um, and then the senator asks him, well, what would you change if you could change anything? Oh, I'm not really into politics. <laughs> Political issues. Says, yeah. so he says, oh, and I, and I love, too, that the senator says, let me tell you something. I have learned more about America from riding in taxi cabs than in all the limos in the country. He's such a political. Such a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then he says, he you know, pushes him to say, what would you change? And he says, oh, I clean up this city here. It's like an open sewer filled with filth and scum. I know, just... I, <laughs> Just revealing his inner monologue. Yeah. And it just starts to rise up. <laughs> Whatever ever becomes the president should just really clean it up. You know what I mean? Sometimes I go out and I smell it. I get headaches. It's so bad, you know? And they just like, they just never go away, you know? It's like, I think that the president should just clean up this whole mess here. He should just flush it right down the fucking toilet. And, and you can see the senator again being political. He takes it in. Yeah. And then he's like, "What?" And you see the guy he's with going, "What the fuck is yeah. going on yeah. here?" And then, and then he, I love the turn. He goes, "Well, uh, I think I know what you mean, Travis, but it's not going to be easy. We're going to have to make some radical changes." Sam straight. And he he does what politicians do. He spins it. Yeah. You know. Yep. Exactly. Uh, By the way, do you find his name interesting, Palantine? Yeah, it's a Roman. What is it? It's a yeah. Was it emperor? No, no. I'm thinking. Palatine. There's the Palatine Hill in right. Rome, right? Um, and I think there's also a figure, but I can't tell you exactly what it is. In my mind, I was thinking palindrome. Mm. Is there a way that palindrome works for him? Like same backwards, same way backwards as, and forwards. Yeah, I am sure that a smart guy like you could figure out a way that. that <laughs> I'm works, trying to figure out mentally as I think about it now as yeah. we do this podcast. Um, anyway, it's interesting. Again, but as you said, nothing is here by accident. Yeah, you know, Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese—they pick those names. Mm-hmm. Uh, he shakes hands with the senator, he goes away, and uh, and he's driving along and stops. And who gets into his cab but Jodie Foster? Right, or tries to. Tries to. Yeah. yeah. Come on, man. Get me out of here, all right? Come on! So, we should say that Jodie Foster was 
12 years old when she made this movie. Wait, what? Legitimately 12 years old? Oh, yeah. What? She was 12 years, seven months old. So what he says about her in the film is true? What uh, sports says? She's 12 and a half years old? Oh, yeah. Wow. Holy shit. This is an incredibly composed 12-year-old. She, First of all, she's amazing. Yes. And I remember, so I don't know if you watched it, but I grew up watching Courtship of Eddie's Father. Oh, yeah. That's where I saw Jodie Foster. Right, first, right, Because right. she's his best friend. Uh, yeah. And then she's in uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Right. So he had worked with her before. And he went to the mom and said, I want her to do this script. She'd yeah. be perfect. And the mom said, okay. Was she in Bad News Bears? No. No, that's uh, Tatum O'Neill. She was in Little Foxes. I think so, yes. That's where I saw her first. Ah. And then, oh, and Bugsy Malone. On Bugsy Malone, of uh, course. Absolutely. Yeah. Bugsy so, Malone. By the way, I 100% want to do Bad News Bears. <laughs> okay, yeah, definitely. I love that movie. I thought you were going to say Bugsy Malone. No, like, yes. no, 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 no. <laughs> You're going to have to Patreon a lot of money for us to do Bugsy Malone with Scott Baio. Scott Baio and Jodie Foster, and they are they are like 15 years old, or maybe even 12, I guess, 12, kid 13. Gangsters. I think yeah, they're kid gangsters. This. It's a really funny, sweet 70s film I watched take a on a gangster. When I was yeah. a kid, I haven't watched it in 30 years, and I don't think I'm going to. They shoot machine guns, but they're cream pies. But they're cream pies. <laughs> You've watched it a lot. It's one of my favorites. But we digress. Yes. <laughs> Jodie Foster. How did Bugsy Malone sneak in here? Yeah. She gets into the cab yeah, and is saying, go, go, take me away. And he's moving kind of slow and looking in the mirror. He's an observer. He's an observer. And in comes a hand and someone drags her out of the cab. Yeah. And it is upsetting. Mm -hmm. And the guy is a recognizable outfit, although we don't see who it is. We don't see his face, which I think is brilliant. But you see that he's wearing sort of a cowboyish sort of Yeah, the wife beater shirt, yeah. And he throws uh, a very crumpled $20 bill onto the front seat and mm-hmm. says you know drive on and travis bickle drives on yeah but then we as the observer or unless he's looking through his rearview mirror we see um her keep trying to pull away from yep uh harvey Cattell, which is sport and two or three times before yep. we finally move away from them this is a and this is a key moment in the film mm-hmm. is this is i think this is the failure of his heroic knight in shining armor image of himself yeah. that he's going to spend the rest of the movie trying to recover from. Oh, I interesting. I never thought that. Not saving her. Oh. She needed saving and he didn't save her. How funny. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it certainly haunts him because he doesn't spend that $20 until that later 20. on. And this is, again, this is good filmmaking. Yeah. That is very specifically crumpled. Yes. So that when we see it again yeah. and again... We recognize where it's from. Yep. You know, it's a very small thing, but it's really important. Yeah. And then he goes on another one of these drives. He gets egged by kids and stuff thrown at his cab. And I love their shots of the open fire hydrants and water streaming out. And he goes through the water because it's a hot, hot summer. Right. And it is just this image of this New York at this era. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's quite a snapshot. Yeah. And he finally gets back to the base, the operations where the taxis are. Mm-hmm. And that $20 bill is still sitting on the front seat. And the camera goes up to his face and it goes down to the $20 bill as he grabs it and back up to his face. And I know this sounds silly, but those are hard shots. Okay. Just technically, because you got to pull focus and he moves pretty fast. And that camera's got to, you got to be, it's like a dance. The camera operator, the focus puller and the actor actor all have to be in perfect, perfect sync Mm -hmm. to get that shot correct. Wow. It's, I mean, it's little, it's not like doing like the, the huge tracking uh, steady cam shot going into the Cobra Cabana and in Goodfellas. Goodfellas, It's not like that, Mm -hmm. 
but it still takes real professionals really, really working well together. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Martin Scorsese said that was a really tough shot to get. Okay. Um, it's time for the date. Yeah. I think this date's going to go really well. <laughs> How about you? Uh, no. <laughs> He's walking through this long, super long lens shot, so everything's out of focus except him. He's back in that corduroyish, rust-colored jacket. Yeah, that's all he has. It looks good. Got a tie now. Mm-hmm. Um, Sybil looks beautiful. Yes. In this white kind of knit dress. She had some expensive costumes, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gives her the record. We see this drummer who's got like shoe polish in his Yeah. Head. Apparently, Peter Boyle found that drummer and said, Marty, Marty, you got to hear this guy. And they put him in the movie. That's He's perfect. a real street player. Now back to Gene Krupa's syncopated style shortly. That's the New York ambience. And we're going to see a great movie. It's 1975. Maybe we'll go see Rocky. Or sure. A lot of good films came out that year. Sure. Or maybe we'll go see Sometime Sweet Susan. <laughs> <laughs> it's it seems like a higher class theater than the uh pay and play or whatever the place yeah. you went to yeah uh before because it's, it's a foreign it's a foreign, foreign porn it's foreign porn foreign porn yeah uh swedish yes and her reaction is is like you gotta be kidding what this is a dirty movie no no this this is the, this is a movie that uh, a lot of couples come to all kinds of couples go here Sure about that? Yeah. Yeah, I see him all the time. Um, but she's excited. That's well. That was my question. Is yes. She still decides to go in. Yes. Yeah. So here's the thing. Let's have this conversation because first of all, so she goes this in. Is what the cinephiles is about, my friend. <laughs> yes. She she goes in. She sees the movie. She starts to hide herself and then gets upset. Leaves. He tries to stop her from. Then he gets. Uh, Physical with her by grabbing her arm two or three times, which I guess at the time maybe wasn't considered that physical, but now, of course, now much worse. very much so it is. And uh, um, she is disgusted with him. Yeah. And we've all been on that date where... I've never been on this date. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. No, no, I'm not saying that. Where we take our girl to a porn movie. No, we've been on that date where... As you, you do. Where you, right, where the, the attraction dissipates because maybe a comment was said or yeah. a reaction was had and then like either they or you and then the attraction is the date is over and you're not going to see this person again because yes. you're just like nope even and, i who have very little dating experience yes was on that day <laughs> there you go so when it happens though but this is so interesting i think this is a psychological thing to explore here because to me it's it's fascinating because she goes she does go and she's slightly titillated by the fact that he has the guts or the balls uh, or the incredible stupidity to take her to a porn movie on a first date. And it's a foreign... So to him, in his mind, he might actually be taking her to something a little more elevated because it's it's in Swedish or it's foreign and, you know, and it's an exploration of sexuality. They even mentioned Kinsey in the, in the voiceover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is this an exploration of sexuality or is this a porn film? I don't know. But those Mondo films came out around this time as well, right? All those weird little Mondo films. So maybe this was part of that. Well, it's it's it, it's on the spectrum. Sure, I mean, sure. Like, we're looking at a big, huge orgy. Absolutely. But we're also seeing sex from the inside out. Yeah, no, there's some weird, because so we're like on cells. And, yeah, it's you know, very it's a, European. Definitely. Okay, but when she walks out, but her reaction is so harsh. It's like, why did you buy the ticket? Or why did you let him buy the ticket? Why did you sit down? Did you not know you were walking? You're more intelligent than Travis is. 
you knew what the fuck you're walking into. So when you flip out, I think what it is is that Travis revealed this like, um, what's the word? A ugly underbelly that she has. This fascination with this kind of dirtier parts of her life or the dirty parts of sex. And she was ashamed of how deep he got her to look at it and then stormed out. That's my opinion. It could be very surface that she was just offended and she left. But in I don't I just don't buy that she would be like, Oh, you're taking me to a dirty movie. Oh. And then or I don't go to these places usually. And then she goes, sits down, and only when she starts to see what she's watching or sees the stuff that she does she have a harsh reaction. And storm out. She doesn't give him a chance to apologize. She doesn't give him a chance. Like she even insults the album. Keep it. I have it already. Like it's just so harsh that I think he exposed something in her that she didn't want to be aware that she had inside. I, I think there's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where this movie gets into things that most movies don't. Yes. Which is that people are complicated. Mm-hmm. I think she has multiple feelings. I think she is insulted mm-hmm. that she would t- he would think to take her to a place like this. I think part of her is going... I'm going to be polite. I think there's that is okay. happening in there. And I think the, I've never seen a thing like this. Maybe this right. is, well, maybe that, maybe I am a girl who likes things like this. Maybe this is a thing mm-hmm. I've always been curious about. And then she gets in there and, and they walk in in the middle of the movie. They do. You know, like he, he it is not, and, and she pretty quickly goes, no, this, and, and the other thing yeah. is they're surrounded by men, Yeah, you know, who may or may not be masturbating. Sure. You know, like this is not the right place for her. And she goes out and then, and then she's trying to establish whether or not she was or wasn't titillated. I think she's trying to establish her, you know, her strength and her, yeah. you know, boundaries. Yeah. Um, the other thing, by the way, that I think is interesting is in the, we just saw a scene where a guy physically pulled someone out of a cat. Right. And now he is physically trying to restrain her from getting in a cat. Yeah. And it's really a strange parallel that's happening back to back. That's great. And I, and I want to say the thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to this quote multiple times because I don't want to say the whole quote right now, but this is what Paul Schrader said about mm-hmm. what's going on in this film. He says, the girl he desires, he can't have. And the girl he can have, he can't desire. Right. Ooh. What a terrible place to be. Yeah. And, and that he that both Schrader and Scorsese says that he takes her to this movie on purpose mm-hmm. to take the because there's a Madonna whore thing going sure. on in this film. Right. And he takes the Madonna to destroy her, essentially, you oh. know, to sully her. He sees the purest person he's ever seen in the white dress. And where mm-hmm. does he take her? He takes her to a porn movie. Yeah. You know, there's something about he puts her on a pedestal and then he wants to bring her down to his world. Yeah. And maybe this is a, and of course, we are analytical people. So maybe this is a subconscious revenge moment for her making him feel kind of stupid in the cafe. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, and then he says this thing. It's like, well, this is the only place I know that we go. Yeah. I don't know is, these other movies. I can take you to another, take you someplace I, else. I've never, I don't know anything about other places, yeah, but yeah. I can take you there, which is, <laughs> we've already said Travis Bickle is not the most worldly of people. No. But you would have think that he would have been to a movie. Sure. That uh, was not porn. And if nothing else, he would talk to somebody, when it maybe Peter Boyle or his boys, be like, hey, I got this date with this girl. Where should I take her? Yeah. Right? What movie can I take? What's a good movie to take her to? The answer is Sometimes Sweet Susan. That is the best. <laughs> you got to take her there. I'm telling you, it's a great movie. Yeah, that's movie. Of course, another question too, Steve. How the fuck did he find this place? Like, how the <laughs> fuck did he find this theater in this movie? What was it about this theater in this movie that meant, was <laughs> said to him? Because the director. Yeah, that's fair. He that's knows fair. everything there is about movies. <laughs> uh, he calls her up. 
Listen, uh, I'm, I'm sorry about the, the other night. I didn't know that was the way you felt about it. Well, I, I, I didn't know that was the way you felt. I, I, I would have taken you somewhere else. And again, it's a fascinating shot. Yeah. He's on this shot. It's flat space, which means we're, there's no depth to the shot. Mm-hmm. And he's on the phone. It's three-quarter profile, so which means he's looking, or one-quarter profile. So he's looking kind of away, and he's off of the center of the frame. Yeah. Everything about this shot is not how you would do it. We never really see his face. And in the middle of this conversation that is, uh, by the way, I think it's nice that she even picked up the phone. You know, I've got another theory, but go ahead. Okay. Well, and, and all I was going to say is in mm-hmm. the middle of the conversation, the camera just moves yeah. off him yeah. and looks down an empty hallway. Mm-hmm. What's your other theory about that? that? She, he's not, she's oh, not, he's on the not phone. talking oh, to her. He's not talking to her. Oh, that's my theory is that well, he's, then why is she being mean to him? He's creating it all in his head. It's wow. his own, it's his own subconscious. Like this is the beginning of the snapping of him in becoming wow. Travis Bickle because the shot veering off Steve yeah. is so it's an empty hallway. Yeah. Nothing's there. You know what? I think it's a totally supportable theory. Yeah, that, I may be, I may off. I'm sure Scorsese would be like, "No, is he Roka's an idiot." If he ever even says my name out of his mouth, but like in my feeling, he, does, he would say. By the way, if I could get a, a recording of Martin Scorsese saying Roka's an idiot, he should never say my name out of his mouth. <laughs> that would make my day. It would make it, it would be, be my ringtone. Every cinephiles from all, to, for all it would, time. Oh, just open the cinephiles <laughs> and fuck Steve Morris. Can we have him say that too? <laughs> I, I, let me tell you, you know, Rock was an idiot. He's never going to say my name. Oh, no. by the way, I was watching it. This yeah. is, I, I will get back to the movie okay. in a sec. But I was watching one of the behind the scenes, this interview with Martin Scorsese <sighs> today, fairly recently. So he's, you know, yeah. for older, but his eyebrows are still dark black. Oh, hair. yeah, of course. And I suddenly just started staring at his eyebrows, which move completely independently, yeah. constantly. Yeah. And I couldn't stop laughing. He's Groucho Marx. I, the, I've never seen eyebrows do. I couldn't listen to what he was saying because yeah. it's, it's like his eyebrows, each one had its own life. I think I would, the, the, you know, the hell I would feel, uh, joy and hell at the same time, or heaven and hell, I guess, would be if I was caught in a conversation between Mark Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino. Oh, the speed of that conversation would destroy me, yet I would get so much information out of it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, th- I think because of the empty hallway, I think, and I think he's having this, I think he, you know, he, and, and you know, he later on, he confronts her and he says, I called you, oh, why would you pick up? And he says, he, he talks about calling her multiple times. Yeah. Uh, and he only picked, she only picked up the one time and she won't come to the phone. I think he's creating that whole conversation in his head because he knows he fucked this up with her and now starts the break. Uh, the, the one angelic creature that he was able to find in this cesspool of people rejected him it's so harshly too and it's, rejected sometimes sweet susan which it, it, i think she really didn't give a chance to. that's right it's a, it's a cinematic masterpiece in sweden <laughs> it's the highest grossing film in sweden but no but but so when the empty hallway that's what i that's why i think the scorsese does this very crafty deft move that would seem out of place but i think he's kind of indicating mm. he's not there's nothing he's not talking to anybody well i'll tell you something that i think might support your theory yeah. is that the next thing he talks about sending her all these flowers yeah and the next we've seen his apartment and all the flowers <laughs> are in the apartment and i'm like well did you send her the flowers right why are they all here I also sent flowers, but with no luck. The smell of the flowers only made me sicker. The headaches got worse. I think I got stomach cancer. And there's something, by the way, as he talks about the flower. They're all drying and wilting yeah. and rotting. There's, he, and he says the smell of the flowers is making him feel sick. And it kind of makes me feel sick. It's very evocative the way that shot is done. Yeah, it's symbolic, too. Um, His mind's deteriorating. I shouldn't complain, though. You're only as healthy... You're only as healthy as you feel. You're only as healthy 
as you feel. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of part one of our discussion of Martin Scorsese's classic, Taxi Driver. If you want to comment on the film, the best place to do it is on our Facebook page. Just search for The Cinephile, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn. Please leave your reviews on iTunes. They really help people find the show. And leave your comments on YouTube. We love interacting with you there. If you want to suggest a movie, you can do it through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thecinephiles. And if you want to purchase or stream any of the films we've ever reviewed, including Taxi Driver, the best place to do it is through our website, cinephiles.net. That's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S dot net. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris, and you can reach John on Twitter and on Instagram at the Says. So that's it for this week, and we will see you next week for part two of Taxi Driver. <laughs>